Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the east end of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. What's up? How's everyone doing today? Good. Good. Yeah. Good. Rainy, dreary, rainy day as we record this. As we record this, yeah. But it's kind of appropriate given our topic today. Yeah. Yeah. It feels it's a it's definitely a great topic. It's a great topic. Uh, so before we talk about the topic, let me do our introductions. So with us again today is Bill Sutton. Hey, Bill. Hey, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And we also have with us Joe Shaw. Hey, Joe. Hey, Annette. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. Are you wearing a hat in your living room? I am wearing a hat in my living room. Sometimes I do that. I, I wear a hat in my living room sometimes. Is it raining in your living room? No, I just occasionally find myself in need of wearing a hat. And today okay. is one of those days. So, it's a hot day. so you didn't take a shower, is what you're saying. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> okay, hat boy. Good to have you. <laughs> Um, also here is Catherine G. Manu, a.k.a. Georgie. Hey, Georgie. Hey, Annette. How's it going? Great. How are you? And what is your title, my friend? I am the co-publisher of the Express News Group. There we go. That's what I was looking for. Um, and my name's Annette Hinkle, and I'm the Arts and Living Editor of the Express News Group. And also joining us today is Kaylin Riley. And Kaylin is one of our very talented writers. Hi, Kaylin. Hi there. I would argue that um, for some people... Ever since the word of what uh, happened with Rover Suede came out, the days aren't gray, but they're red for anger. Yeah, that's lovely. Also joining us today is Julia Hemming, who just completed her junior year at Stony Brook University. And Julia is working as our summer intern, and she's been with us for a number of years. And Julia recently wrote a paper for her school about the topic we're speaking on, which is... Roe v. Wade and the news that came out of the Supreme Court a few weeks ago of early judgment that was released indicating that the court was poised to overturn Roe v. Wade. And there's a lot of very angry people out there, as Kaylin hinted. So let's jump into this. So what do we know? What do we think? Kaylin, would you be the one to start on this? Are you pursuing the news story angle? Well, For now, there's not a new story immediately pending, but I did write an introduction to the um, opinion piece that was written by Abigail Halleck, who is a Sag Harbor resident and shared her, um, shared a very personal story um, in a viewpoint and the one that came out on May 12th, which was really powerful. And she, in case you didn't get a chance to read it, she shared her story, her personal story of um, sexual assault and how it sort of um, informed and kind of shaped her views on the issue of abortion. So I think, you know, it's just something that's at the top of everyone's minds. And, you know, obviously we're here in New York. And so I think that there's an, it's an interesting sort of framework for thinking about it when you live in a state in the Northeast. Um, But you know, I think a lot of people are thinking about how to help people in other states, how it's going to affect 
it, you know, it's going to have a ripple effect everywhere, whether you live in a state where it's going to become outlawed or, or whether you live in a state where it's going to be protected because you just can't really assume anything anymore. You know, Michelle Goldberg wrote a really good um, opinion piece, really good and kind of terrifying opinion piece in the New York Times um, beginning of the month about kind of what it will do and how you can't really even assume that abortion will always be protected, even in states like New York, because um, the people who are really anti-abortion aren't really going to stop pushing until they get federal ban on abortion, which um, is definitely something that could happen. So, you know, it's really interesting to think about. Uh, that's why even if you live somewhere where abortion is still going to be protected for now, it's very relevant. I mean, I just think it's relevant to literally everyone. So, you know, I have three children. Um, it's certainly on my mind all the time. It's a fascinating topic. And just to see how it's all going to play out is really, really intriguing. I thought it was interesting. I saw a news story not long ago about um, how a, um, a Planned Parenthood, um, I think it was a Planned Parenthood clinic um, in Missouri, seeing what was coming, quietly closed their doors and they moved across the border to Illinois, mm. where they opened, where they have just opened up like a, a very big facility, um, one that, that can take, you know, like 20 patients or more at a time. And the thinking, which was like, oh my gosh, somebody really thought about this, was that as all of the states around Illinois um, ban abortion, that they were going to get all of the traffic of the women who were coming into um, Illinois to get the services. Illinois, but, New York, and California. Are, yeah, are those gonna are going to be the hotbed. But Illinois area. in particular, because you're surrounded by mm -hmm. um, anti-choice states, you know. Um, but I think the fear is, and, and you know, there was this legislator, this woman who's in the state legislator, legislature in Missouri, whose goal is to now make it criminally prosecutable if any woman crosses Missouri state lines to go out of state to get an abortion, that they'll, they're trying to write legislation that will um, hold those um, states where it's legal accountable for um, taking care of women from these more conservative states. So do we think that that's going to be something they're going to be able to pull off? Um, that's why what we're seeing in Connecticut is so important. They're enacting laws that um, make it so other states where it is illegal or where it is a felony can't extradite the doctors who perform the procedure in Connecticut where the procedure is legal. So it protects both the doctors and the patients. Um, Connecticut is essentially sealing all of those records. So you could come from any state in the United States of America to Connecticut, receive an abortion, and that documentation does not leave the state borders of Connecticut. So your doctor's home at home, wherever that might be, will never know to protect you. So you could go from Texas or Missouri or wherever to Connecticut and you're protected. But what if it's like they, I mean, those laws that they're writing in those states are almost like these um, vigilante laws where it doesn't have to be adopted. Like if some neighbor sees you leaving out of state and you come back not pregnant, you know, they can make $10,000 by turning you in. I mean, that's the thing that worries me. It's like, will that be enough? The, the Uber driver that drives you to the procedure can can be held accountable. Uber driver, and that's all. And that's all civil stuff. Yeah, so I think it's even, not. I mean, it's not criminal. I mean, and that's the scary part. Is I think right. I mean, it, it's oh, I yeah, you know. Really. I think that's how they've gotten around yeah. um, some of that. And and yeah, I mean, 
yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's craziness. It really is. Um, the, the, the doors it opens, um, throwing this back to the States in some ways, you know, it's, it's certainly a step backwards, but it also part of the, the thing that was during the period of Roe v. Wade being in effect, it basically set a floor for women's rights in, in every state. And this removes that floor and, and really does open the door for states. And, and this, this leaves it all open to the, to the politicians. I mean, under Roe, it was a guaranteed right that, that, that a woman could do whatever she wanted with, with her body. Um, you know, and it made that a, it made that a, a constitutional protection um, you know, under, under the Supreme Court decision. Now you're going to have lawmakers all over the country making those decisions. And, and this is not a decision, I think, that should be left to, to, to lawmakers. I think that's the crazy part, right? One of the things Kalen pointed out about the idea of, um, of, of people being able to be prosecuted for leaving the state to get abortions is it kind of references back to the fugitive slave laws. And it talk about archaic, right? You know, you're chasing yeah. women um, to track them down and punish them, just like, um, you know, fugitive slaves. I think what's really interesting too, um, or interesting is not really the right word, terrifying might be more accurate, is that a lot of the politicians who are anti-abortion are also very religious. So a lot of their basis of a pro-life platform comes from their religion. And that's not accurate for everyone. Not every religion is pro-life. Not every person is religious. So they're kind of creating this umbrella that they want to shove all of America underneath that this pro-life Christianity is accurate for everyone. And that's not true for every American woman. Um, so the ending of Roe removes a lot of America. It, it does. It removes American women's bodily autonomy. And that's a really scary future because are we going to revert to a time where women had no say over any procedure? Will a woman need someone else's um, permission to receive a different kind of procedure that isn't something as invasive as an abortion? Just, there's so much unknown right now. Yeah. It's like you're not supposed to be, you're not, you're not able to force someone to give blood or give an organ, but you can force a woman to have a child. Um, yeah, it's kind of frightening. If I may, and uh, you know, not not having a uterus makes a difference here. That that, you know, but but I'll tell you what bothers me, um, as as a white male when I look at at the direction the court is heading, is the 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 contortions that Samuel Alito seems to have gone to to try and find a constitutional ground for overturning this when I think there are two counter arguments I've heard, which, which are both excellent and, and they're being made in, by various people. So I won't even bother um, singling out any one person. One is that there's, you know, to say that, that there's nothing in the constitution that even addresses abortion, that the word abortion doesn't appear anywhere. And so for originalists, who believe that the constitution needs to be interpreted exactly the way it was intended at the time it was written. Well, it was at a time when women 
had no role in the conversation and in fact were not even considered when the the country was founded so you know of course the word abortion doesn't appear anywhere women were not something that was even under consideration in 1776 i guess neither were african americans right exactly so it's sort of like by going back to this thinking they're they think of all the things they're going to be able to say don't deserve any rights at all right. you know black people women gay people it's a very like tunnel vision interpretation of the constitution but the, the second thing and this is a point that our own columnist um uh, Tony Brandt made just recently, but I've heard it elsewhere, um, is that that when you when you get down to a conversation about abortion and when when is a fetus a person, when is when does life begin? These are not scientific questions, they are religious questions. And so by singling one of those out, you're violating the first sentence of the Bill of Rights, which is the Congress shall make no laws establishing a religion. And, and there's just, there's, when, when the, the law of the land is going to be in some states going to be based on the idea that life begins at conception. Listen, that's a perfectly reasonable belief for people. They can have that belief. There's, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's a belief. Right. And individually, that's an individual belief. It's a belief. It's, it's based on religion. And so for, for the Supreme Court now to make a decision that says, you know, states can say life begins at, at, at conception and maybe sooner because yeah. certainly contraception is going to be in play now and, and other things. Uh, it's establishing religion. That's a violation of, of constitutional law. And if the Supreme Court of the United States doesn't see that, we're, we're all in real trouble because we've, we've come unmoored. I think what's really important, too, is there's not really a belief, but I don't think a lot of Americans really understand the history of abortion access. So if you look back to 1776, when the Declaration and the Constitution and everything were written, women received abortion all the time. Women had midwives, and that's who took care of their reproductive health. And abortion was a very common procedure when you didn't want another child or couldn't afford another child, you had an abortion and you went to your midwife and she took care of it and the, the pregnancy was terminated. Whereas the American Medical Association was founded and the decision was made that women were no longer allowed to receive procedures like that or gynecological care from midwives and they had to go to a doctor at a time in which doctors were predominantly male and the American Medical Association was all men, this decision went from being something that a woman made between her and her midwife, and that was it, to a decision that was made by a group of men who didn't know anything about this individual person. So they basically were trying to make the money, like they were jealous that the midwives were getting the fees for this procedure, right? Yes, and then in 1910, there was a complete abortion ban, and that abortion ban continued until Roe was instituted in 1973. So I wonder... Like, what do we do? We think that New York's going to maybe take the same route that Connecticut did and write some ironclad legislation to preserve um, the right and to protect women who might travel to the state from other areas. They might. But then, like, let's imagine, as Michelle Goldberg pointed out in her column, that Republicans get control of Congress and the presidency again. 
Guys, do you think that they're going to be like, yeah, we're not going to abolish the filibuster because, you know, that's not the right thing to do and try to institute a federal abortion ban? Or do you think that they might be like, oh, now that we're in control and it'll benefit us, yeah, we're just going to abolish the filibuster now and we're going to we're going to go for a federal abortion ban. That's not as crazy as an idea as I would have said it was a few years ago. No, because they don't care. They, they've, they've already had a track record of saying that something was wrong and so they weren't going to do it. And then when it benefited them, going ahead and doing it anyway. So And, and, and the Supreme Court would certainly right. back up that ban, right? Right. So... So what's what's fascinating about that discussion, Kalen, is I think it does benefit the Republican Party right now in that they have achieved something that they've wanted to achieve for a very long time. But it's a it's an open question to me that if the Republican Party went so far as to enact a federal ban on abortions, you have to remember that 70 plus percent of people in this country do not support this position. And I think there are varying degrees of commitment to that. But I think when you get to a federal ban on abortion, it, it could backfire in a, in a big way. And, and by the way, I think even the Roe v. Wade ruling could backfire on the Republican Party in these midterms. And I'll go a step further that if it doesn't backfire in these midterms, I think we're, we're headed down a very fast track then because there has to be some penalty or, or there won't be any slowing this down. This is, this, this is a movement that, give it credit, it's been patient, it's been relentless, it's, it's worked hard over the years to get to this point and it has momentum. And, and if there's no price to be paid for this, um, the momentum is going to continue on. There will be, you know, if you're a woman and you have a miscarriage, that's no longer just a tragedy for you individually. It will become a matter of state interest about why you had a miscarriage and what did you do and were you taking drugs and did you follow all of your doctor's orders to the T and might you face some type of penalty for that? It's not a crazy, that seemed crazy just a year ago. It doesn't seem so crazy now because if they start, if, if the rules start to be interpreted that personhood begins at conception, um, it changes the rules for so many things. And then it doesn't even begin to talk about LGBTQ rights and gay marriage and everything else that is religious based that now is open season. Um, birth control, um, these, these are all the birth control law rulings by the Supreme Court were basically based on the same type of precedence. Um, it, think, think about how, how these rules are written, these new laws are written too, that a woman's rapist could then turn her in and make $10,000 while he you know, has no penalties whatsoever. He could actually make money on this if he turns in his victim. It's just... So uh, Margaret Atwood was really writing um, nonfiction when she created The Handmaid's yeah. Tale. Yeah, I mean, I think her her piece in The Atlantic last week was was just summed it up for me that she thought, hey, I was writing fiction. I didn't know I was in, I was predicting the future. And that's that is, you know, I used to think those kinds of things were overstatements. I don't think that anymore.
Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton, carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I remember after Donald Trump was elected president, I picked up The Handmaid's Tale. I'd read it before. It's like required reading for, (laughs) you know, an aware woman (laughs) to read The Handmaid's Tale. And I remember Gavin, my husband looked over at me and he was like, you're rereading that? Like, why are you rereading this? And I was like, it just feels like this moment has occurred. And, And as I was rereading it, it was scary how much I could see happening in a short period of time. And, you know, we talked about it a lot and he was like, I mean, you're really overreacting. (laughs) It really can't get that bad. Right. And now here we are, you know, all of these years later. And it's like, so I wasn't overreacting. Like I knew then that this was, you know, a moment towards where we are now, Um, you know, where my constitutional rights, I feel like, and my daughter's rights are being threatened, you know, my personal rights over my body and my daughter's rights over her body are now going to potentially be dictated by largely a group of white men. And let's be honest, I mean, you know, the people who are going to be really affected by this are those who don't have the money to travel where they need to to get services. It's rooted in racism, like fully rooted in racism. And classism. Yep, it's it's an absolute killer to any kind of progress when it comes to trying to eradicate or diminish racial disparities. I mean, Black women already suffer from a much higher um, maternal mortality rate, you know, all these things. And it's also worth mentioning that this is happening in the backdrop of um, a formula shortage crisis in this country. And so uh, my question for anyone who is anti-abortion is, what are you doing about the formula? What are you doing about paid paternal leave What are you doing about universal pre-K and healthcare? You cannot call yourself pro-life if you don't put the same kind of energy and enthusiasm behind all of those issues as you do behind uh, preventing abortion. Because otherwise, it's like nakedly clear that you actually don't care about life. You just care about controlling women's bodies. And they want to increase the supply of domestic infants. Remember that little phrase that was in that court um judgment (laughs) even things with birth control there's so many there's so many layers to this and so many things you learn every day even if you thought you knew a lot so for instance you know how like a lot of people who are anti-abortion love to put this like put the like responsibility guilt upon the women right like well if you don't want to get pregnant don't have unprotected sex or whatever did you know that plan b 
Um, if you weigh more than 155 pounds, its efficacy declines significantly. So that means if you're a woman who weighs more than 155 pounds, which is, you know, most women who live on this earth, your chance of having plan B work is much lower. And so there's just so many little mm. insidious things like that, that that it's just like the deck, the deck is just stacked and stacked and stacked against you, even if you're quote unquote responsible, which isn't really the point anyway. The point is your autonomy. So whether or not you got raped or whether or not you simply want to have an abortion, it doesn't really matter. You should be able to get one. Hey, Julia, you mentioned in the piece that you wrote for school about the history um, you know, taking all of this in with the history of abortion. I'm curious what you think about the fact that we have more uh, prescription-based abortion options now, and they're becoming more available. And, and Kaylin mentioned Plan B, and there's, you know, that it changes the narrative to some degree, but that I would have to think that with the interpretation that the Supreme Court is taking, that even those methods, I mean, those methods have have really, I think, tamped down a lot of the the, the hyperactivity um, over abortion in the last 10 years, because more and more, it became something that women could do in the privacy of their own home, consulting with a doctor. It didn't require it didn't require a trip. But this is still ending a pregnancy, right? So what we're kind of seeing now and what I found in my research is that there's a huge increase in states where abortion has been banned in the past year, specifically Texas, of women accessing these abortion medications online um, through international pharmacies and then having it shipped to their house. And while that is incredibly empowered to find a way around the illegality of abortion in your state, it is also incredibly privileged because if you cannot afford internet service, if you cannot afford international shipping or the cost of a consult with an international doctor to receive these medications, while that medication exists, you might not have access to it. As Caitlin noted, it, it doesn't work for every woman. Well, and also it can open a dangerous door too. I mean, I was just reading a piece in the New York Times about how through TikTok and other social media sites, teens and college students are accessing what they believe are safe prescription drugs from online vendors and they're laced with fentanyl and kids are dying. And so, you know, now you're creating a situation where you're asking somebody to go on the internet and you don't have any idea whether they're finding this reliable source or if it's a completely unreliable source and they're not actually getting what they're paying for. And, you know, now they're rolling the dice because they, you know, can't find these medications in their pharmacies because their states have outlawed it. So, you know, you're just putting women at this like incredible health risk. That's putting aside the fact that Julie is 100% right. You know, upper and upper middle class women are probably not going to be as affected by these changes in Roe v. Wade as the lower class women are, who are not going to be able to afford to buy those medications, who can't drive across state lines, you know, who are just going to be saddled with this. And then they're going to have babies and they're going to have no health care. They're going to have a $10,000 hospital bill and no childcare. 
What's important to remember um, based on the history of abortion access in America is making abortion illegal does not end abortion. Yep. It ends right. safe abortion. Yep. So if you're saying that you're right. pro-life and that's the reason why you're taking this platform and you're changing the laws, women die when they don't have safe abortion access. There's a reason why a wire hanger has become a symbol of Roe v. Wade. And that's because women used to take knitting needles and wire hangers and shove it inside themselves and die because they would puncture internal organs or go into sepsis. So making it so that it's completely illegal is going to end up killing American women. And if the woman dies, so does the fetus. So I think what was interesting in your paper, Julia, which I read um, uh, through, the idea that some of the cases that you focused, women who maybe had abortions in the 60s before it was legal, actually relied on their mothers and grandmothers to tell them how to do this. Women have turned to other women for decades to find ways to safely perform an abortion on themselves when it was illegal. And in my research as a women's studies student at Stony Brook, I read a lot of women's stories about what life was like pre-Roe when they got pregnant from tragic or unplanned circumstances and were forced to do wild things to themselves. So one of the stories I read was a story of a woman whose grandmother got pregnant after her, the woman who wrote the story's mother was born. So she her grandmother had her mom. Her mom was about nine months old at the time, and they, she couldn't afford another baby. They had multiple children. It was the 1930s. It wasn't feasible. So she put her children down for a nap, and she picked up a needing needle, and she ended up dying from the attempted abortion. There was another story of a woman who lived in New York. She went to her mother, and she said, I don't know what to do. Her grandmother advised her to use a knitting needle. She wasn't comfortable with that. Her mother gave her 25 cents and sent her to Coney Island to ride the cyclone, thinking that the sheer force of the roller coaster would cause her body to terminate the pregnancy. And when that didn't work, she found someone who put a blindfold on her, led her to a back alley, brought her up to a secret apartment and performed an abortion. And you listen to these women tell these stories with all of these details. And it's horrifically tragic because no woman should have to do something in such secret that should be a safe medical procedure that we made it safe. We were protecting the lives of so many women by allowing them access where you just go to a clinic and you see a doctor and if you can, or if you're able to take the pill, you take a pill. And if not, you have the procedure and it's safe. And there's doctors and nurses around you to protect the woman. So with the overturning of Roe, that's not going to be possible for everyone anymore. And while women might be able to travel to other states, again, that's an issue of privilege. Not every woman who lives in Texas or Missouri is going to be able to fly to Connecticut or New York or Vermont to have the procedure. That's incredibly expensive. You still have to pay for the abortion procedure. And the majority of women who receive abortion are low income. 
And as we know, a good majority of low-income people are people of color. So this is going to disproportionately affect the minorities that already exist in this country. You know, it's bad when guns have more rights than women in this right? country. Seriously. Yeah. What's disturbing to me is that because of the, the basis of, of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, I think that we, I think we saw the, the, the idea of having pills that can perform the same, the same procedure rather than having to undergo a, a medical procedure. There's, there's going to be no way to stop states from outlawing even their use and, and making it impossible for women to obtain those. And, they will try. And- they will try. I, I have to say, like, I, without, like, getting too much into my own personal life, I'm very close to some people who have been very anti-abortion for their, their whole lives. Um, so I had sort of a real front row seat to that <clears throat> movement growing up. And um, it is not a political issue for them. It's a moral issue. So because of that, they have this whole um, existential and emotional attachment to it, which is why they will not quit because it, 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 it's meaningful to them in this like existential way that um, really makes all kind of logic go out the window. And so, they won't. They won't be satisfied. They're going to work to outlaw birth control, any kind of way you can get it. Like this isn't going to be. That's why, like anyone that thinks that this is the end for them or that they're satisfied, I, I actually think it's going to, it's going to um, provide like a boost for a lot of people in this movement to do more. And so it's really just. Um, you know, it's really, that's, that's the thing that people need to understand. Like they're not going to stop there. They want more. And then other, other moral issues like gay marriage and transgender rights and um, things like that, I guess, are also going to be on their agenda. Right. Yeah. I think what we're kind of seeing now is the same way it happened in the sixties and seventies of young women protesting now you're seeing young women who are my age in their 20s protesting with their grandmothers and social media is a huge driver in empowerment so i've been seeing a lot on tiktok specifically of women saying now is a time that you live in a small town that you go to the pharmacist and you request that they order extra plan b or morning after pills and if it's an area or you live in a state where that's illegal or abortion is now going to be illegal. Now is the time to order them online before that this Supreme Court ruling is overturned. And essentially you would turn yourself into someone who supplies at morning after medication in the community. It's kind of like we're all going back to being midwives. We are, we're going back to being midwives and it's a little bit scary, but I also think that This is a a call to action for women who are pro-choice, that now is the time to speak up and do whatever you can to support the women around you and get it. It's time to march. It's time to get a poster and it's time to be politically active. It's time to vote. This is not an option anymore. Women of all ages, if you are pro-choice, it's time to show that. 
Have we heard about any networks that have formed to, um, you know, in states where abortion is legal to help women get to these states, like any fundraising efforts or people who are doing shuttles? I've seen online um, one that you can like donate a morning after pill to a woman who lives in a state where abortion is illegal. So that, but that would require someone who lives in a Northern state to purchase the medication. So you would essentially order it online. And then instead of it getting shipped to you, it gets shipped to a woman in need in a um, more conservative state. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised that there's like people who are gonna start running like, you know, shuttle services to safe states. Yeah, I mean, I think there's abortion funds in every state that you can donate to as well. There's lots of good groups. Obviously, Planned Parenthood is always a great resource. You know, I did some preliminary calls around this. Um, you know, in, there's a Planned Parenthood in Riverhead. They do only medicated abortions there, but they are expecting to get an influx of patients in the Planned Parenthood location in Smithtown where they where they do actual abortion procedures. And then the people in Riverhead feel like they'll get a little extra bump in patients because it's the ripple effect. So if more women are coming from out of state to get an abortion in Smithtown, they're going to have to take some of the women that are having regular appointments because remember abortion care is only a very small slice of what, of what Planned Parenthood provides. So all the women that go there for, for other kinds of reproductive health care some of their appointments will need to get shuffled over to Riverhead. It's just going to do that. You know, it's it's going to be that effect everywhere. And obviously it'll be much more acute in a state like Illinois that's closer to some of those, those states, but it is going to have this huge ripple effect and, and it'll be it'll be happening, you know, really soon. I hope it has a ripple effect when it comes to November elections, you know, and you know, we've been waiting and look, people were waiting for my generation. I'm 42 years old. And, you know, when I was 18, 19, 20, you know, voter turnout for my demographic was not very high either. Just like it has remained significantly low for that younger demographic. And I just, I just keep hoping <laughs> that, you know, youth are going to rise up and realize that they do have significant power in their numbers alone. And that just by going to the polls, like they can start to change this conversation and it's going to start with the midterm. I hope you're right. I think, unfortunately, though, um, you know, the voting booth, you're, you're not going to change um, the Supreme you know, Court. Ju ju judicial appointments and not just right. the Supreme Court, but all the federal court appointments that were made, um, you know, over the last, um, you know, six, six years prior, you know, in the prior administration, that oftentimes those are, are lifetime appointments on on the federal benches, and and that's where this, you know, that's where these decisions are are obviously being being made right now, and and I think that you know that was the strategy. Um, you know, when, when, when president Trump came in and, and it was certainly the, you know, the Republican strategy, um, you know, all along is, is to get those uh, bench appointments, uh, you know, that hadn't been filled and, you know, and were filled and to get the, the majority on the Supreme court. And it's going to take a long time to, um, to, to change, to change those. And you can, you can pass laws. Um, but if the courts aren't going to uphold them, 
um, you know, then then it, it becomes a, a longer term issue. But but you're right, Georgie. I mean, people need to stand up and everybody needs to stand up and, and you know, and say this is this is wrong. I mean, it was a strategy that was actually implemented before Donald Trump was elected, because as we all know, federal judge appointments were blocked significantly during the last term of the Obama administration. And, you know, in a way, it was almost like you said, I mean, it was almost more effective, um, you know, with all those federal judge appointments um, that were made you know, once Donald Trump was elected. Um, but, you know, you just, you got to just keep pushing forward and hope that if we can get the right yeah. people into office that are going to respect women's autonomy. You know, we can maybe start to turn the tide eventually. But, you know, it, it is, it's frustrating and it's sad, you know, like I'm 42 years old. And the first time I marched in Washington at a pro-choice rally, I was 13 years old. And it's like 30 years mm. later and like, here we are. Well, let's, let's blame the, you know, the Democrats too. They have not, they had chances to codify Roe and they never did. And you know, what else hasn't passed? The Equal Rights Amendment still hasn't passed. You know, like this is not just the Republicans going at this. This is our, you know, people in the Democratic Party who have not really done what they need to do to protect this um, legislation and make it something that's iron. That's why that religious element is so key. I'm telling you, because I have had a front row seat to this. There's nothing. It's very hard to to match that kind of. I'll say fervor to be kind like it's um, it's it's really it, it, it it's a catalyst for some people. That's just wild. It honestly I mean, it really, really, really animates people in in a way that is almost hard to describe and it really it really makes it's all they think about so if you haven't watched the handmaid's tale go back and take a look at it and i tell you georgie you brought up the handmaid's tale and obviously as uh, I, i can't imagine a woman watching the handmaid's tale and the reaction that you would have to it but i have to say even as an american man um it's one of the one of the most uh, you know I'm thinking of the television series with Elizabeth Moss and and the way that they have 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 done that it's it's one of the most frightening things I've seen in part because what I thought the most terrifying parts of for me were how subtly it started to change and then how quickly it changed and the reaction of people was kind of like well this isn't happening it's clearly not possible it's not going to happen and and it did and i find echoes of that today that 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 i don't think any of i don't think most people really expected the kind of swiftness that we've seen um from the supreme court and in part because i think some of us always held out hope that um you know you look at john roberts who was appointed and a lot of people made a lot of you know, reached a lot of conclusions about how he would vote on things when he got on the Supreme Court. I've always felt like the Supreme Court, um, when you're nominated and 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 you're actually named to the Supreme Court, I think you start to look at issues a little bit differently. But these are these are new people who have been appointed to the Supreme Court now, who who were partisan partisan from the start, and I think were were essentially put on the court to do exactly what's happening now. I mean, they were sent in with this mission. Yeah. 
So I think to any young women who are listening or women of any age, make sure you're registered, register, vote, and get out and take some action because being silent is not an option. So Georgie, have you had this conversation with your own daughter who's coming into her teen years? So we've started to have the conversation. She and I have had really frank conversations, you know, about her body and, you know, the way your reproductive system works. We haven't delved into reproductive choice yet. She's just 13 um, and she's not like dating or active. Um, But now this, what's happened in the last few months is pushing that conversation to the forefront. Um, I mean, she's aware of what abortion is. She's aware that I am pro-choice, that her grandmother is pro-choice, that her aunts are pro-choice, you know, so she's, she's aware of it conceptually, um, but I actually don't think that she understands um, quite yet, and I'm, you know, it's something we're being careful with, because I don't want to scare her. Because when you really break it down, you start to realize how scary it is for me to look at her and tell her that she does not, she could potentially, if she lived in a state like Texas, she could not have control over her future, her life, her body, like that, that could be stripped from her by a government I mean, that's like heavy, deep stuff when you really start to think about it. Um, But it's definitely a conversation we'll be having. And as I hope I see protests and rallies happening, like I said, I was 13 years old when I went to my first rally in D.C., pro-choice rally, went with my mom, went with my aunt, went with my grandma. Is that the one in the early 90s? I think I might have been yep. there. Yeah, I was <laughs> yep. girlfriend. It was like 93, I think. I was absolutely there. 93, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that happens again. She will be standing next to me. And, you know, it's interesting. We did the Women's March after Trump. Many of us were down there. I was down there. We covered I it. I was there again, too, with my daughter. <laughs> we covered it for um, the Express. Christine Sampson and I went down and... Um, you know, we were there all day and I didn't bring Ella then she was, you know, much younger. Um, also because I didn't know what it was going to be like, you know, I was a little, we were all a little nervous going down to the women's March. We weren't sure if we were going to be like greeted with, you know, like, you know, armed guards or anything like that. It ended up being for anybody who was there, this beautiful, amazing, unifying day. It was so positive. There was like no violence. It was really wonderful. And I think having that experience makes me feel like I could bring Ella, um, you know, for the next rally and, you know, they're, they're going to be happening. They have to. So I just want to say that, so I went to Catholic school. So my entire childhood, um, we were not allowed to learn about evolution. However, we were allowed to learn that abortion was a sin, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but um, so they would take kids every year for the March for Life in DC. Um, You got extra credit for going. And I remember being like 13 or 14, right around your daughter's age, and knowing that I did not support abortion being illegal. Would anyone like to learn how Julia learned about what abortion was? I'll tell you. The movie Dirty Dancing. Yes. That was my introduction <laughs> to abortion. Um, I came from I come from a pretty conservative family that my parents were always very open with me about like my body and everything. But 
I, it didn't like really fully click what abortion was until my mom and I were watching Dirty Dancing one day and she went, that's what abortion is, Julia. And that's what happens when it's not legal. And from that point on, I, I was pro-choice. Um, so Georgie, if you need any recommendations, Dirty Dancing is a really great way to ease her into it. <laughs> I actually, you know, it's interesting you say that because I feel like a lot of people in my generation, again, I'm 42, actually had a similar experience with that movie. Like, you know, you had no idea how socially important Dirty Dancing was, but it was. It was so important that in my senior thesis for my women's studies program, that's how I started my paper was the discussion of the movie Dirty Dancing. Fantastically. Because that is a huge driver of the plot is that Penny, for anyone who hasn't seen Dirty Dancing, a brief synopsis. Fix your um, life yes. if you haven't. So, <laughs> yeah. so, register to vote and watch Dirty Dancing. Um, <laughs> the The one dancer, Penny, gets pregnant and decides to have an abortion and she goes to a back alley doctor and they describe him as having a dirty knife and a folding table. Yeah. So the bot, the abortion is botched and the main character baby's dad is a doctor and he swoops in and saves Penny's life as she is pretty much dying um, on screen with Johnny who is played by Patrick Swayze. So you see Johnny almost holding um, Penny as she's in bed writhing in pain and sweating and they don't say it but the abortion was botched and she's essentially dying in that scene until baby's dad saves her and for the record it wasn't Patrick Swayze that got her pregnant right wasn't it some other guy? no it wasn't yes Patrick Swayze is a good man he would never have done that to her it was the, it was the bad guy of the movie but there's a class dynamic here that's really, really important. Hey, hey, spoiler alert here. <laughs> I haven't seen the movie. Don't ruin it for me. It's from freaking 1980. It's like, if you haven't seen the movie <laughs> yeah, yet. It, it came out know. in like 1986. If you haven't seen it yet, there's a million ways. They put it on TV all the time. Like, right. It's like not knowing the ending of The Wizard of Oz. If you don't know it, you are like living under a rock. I'm sorry. Well, if you are looking for possible other resources aside from Dirty Dancing to teach to find ways to talk to your kids about abortion. There's a really excellent parenting newsletter by Melinda Wenner Moyer, who mm, writes the mm -hmm. Well newsletter for the New York Times. And she also has written a book that I own, which I bought purely based on the title because the name of it is How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. And um, she, had her, she had a recent newsletter of how to talk to your kids about abortion. So it was excellent as everything is that she, I would really plug her newsletter for parents. Um, Virginia soul Smith is another one who has an excellent newsletter called burnt toast with a lot of really great information about women's rights. And she's focuses more on like nutrition and um, bodily issues. But anyway, it's important to figure out how to talk to your, like for, for me and Georgie, like, um, you know, I have two daughters ages 10 and soon to be eight these things are on your mind, like figuring out how to talk to them about it. The other thing for me, that's, that's a, a challenge and part of the uh, conversation as well is so Julia, I see your Catholic upbringing and I raise you an evangelical upbringing, which the stakes are even more intense there when it comes to abortion. And um, it's very, you know, there are, there are people um, both on my husband's side of the family and my side who are 
really firmly like anti-abortion. And so it's really tricky too, when you, you know, everyone's dealt with this, with the political nature in this country lately, when you, when you have loved ones who are on the other side of that issue, how do you navigate all of that? And, and with your kids too, because you, you know, these are their family members and it's like, it's a whole minefield to navigate and talk about. And so parents need help discussing this stuff because it's it's around kids are getting becoming aware of it, especially at that tender, like tween adolescent age. It's really tough. Have you had to broach the subject yet with your daughter? Are they there yet? Well, so, I mean, my oldest is 10. So I tend to be, I have to really reel myself back because I, I am like a real TMI kind of lady when it comes to like <laughs> talking about, everything happening with the body and women's rights and all that, because I'm, I'm, o- I'm almost probably like this is a bonus episode of Kaylin self analysis psychoanalysis here for all our listeners. But like, I think I try to overcorrect for some of what I experienced at that age where I felt like growing up in that evangelical environment, I felt like everything was like, just don't have sex and everything will be fine. And we're not even going to say sex because, because oops, it's a bad word. We can't say it. Don't do the thing that makes the babies like, you know, all of that. And, and there just wasn't a lot of discuss. It was just like a hush, hush, hush thing all the time. So I, I have to kind of like pump the brakes on myself sometimes because I'm, I can't, I can't like, like Georgie said, you just can't overwhelm them with all this information at this age. It's very frightening for them. But I think also, you know, it's interesting that you talk about that, that like hush, hush, you know, and it's, you know, growing up as a woman or a female girl, you know, you're, you were constantly told that like your body in a way was wrong and, you know, you had to avoid anything that expressed sexuality. You were putting yourself in danger and it was wrong and don't have sex and don't embrace your body you know, boys, you can do whatever you want, you know, because it's really on us. Right. And and it's sad because I feel like we had come so far where we're having, you know, at younger ages, more honest conversations with our, you know, with our daughters about sexuality and about their bodies. And we're trying to teach them to not be afraid um, you know, of, of their bodies or their sexuality and that it's okay. Just like, you know, the 13 year old boy doesn't need to be afraid of it. It's okay. And now it's like, well, no, but it's depending on what state you're in, it's not okay. And, and and let's, let's push these conversations back into the darkness and let's make sure that you are now really nervous about your sexuality because God forbid something happens, you're not going to have choices. And so please be quiet over there, you know, in your dark little corner. Guys, spoiler alert, pregnancies, they happened in that environment I grew up in. That, that approach did not work. There was a really interesting exhibit at um, my alma mater, Ohio University, that um, was on view a couple years ago when I was taking my daughter around to look at colleges. And it was called Mm. What Were You Wearing? And it was an incredible exhibit of basically the outfits that women and men, by the way, were wearing when they were raped. And it wasn't the sexy off the shoulder cocktail dress. It was like jeans and a sweatshirt or, 
you know, like uh, sweatpants and the t-shirt. And so it was just really powerful because it was all these outfits, you know, the whole idea that what you're wearing is what gets you um, attacked. Um, just really an amazing exhibit. I know locally there's a big fundraiser coming up for Planned Parenthood out here. I think it's the first weekend in June because, you know, this is such a national issue. We could talk about it forever, but obviously we're a community newspaper. So we're always kind of like trying to think about how it affects our, our readers and people here. And so I do think like for anyone that cares about this issue, the, the thing to think about, like Julia said, you know, just be active, like don't, you know, don't think like these things aren't going to happen here, you know, that we're safe, that it's not an issue for us because we're in New York. It's a real, it's really intertwined and it's going to get even more complicated once it goes into effect because there's going to be so much confusion and just, you know, people just have to remain aware, basically. I think it was really crucial to that, that you helped set up the viewpoint that we ran on, on May 12th uh, from the Sag Harbor woman who talked about her experiences oh, at, yeah. at 17 yeah. and, and you were able to help provide some context for that. And I do think it's just that that was a really, really powerful piece that she wrote. And I think it was really important to share those, to make it, to drive home the point that, that it's a national issue that's gonna have repercussions in every single household in America. Kudos right. to um, Abi Abigail Halleck, who was brave enough to put her name on the piece. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and she pointed out in that piece, too, like, people carry around trauma that you don't even know about, and it, not just related to abortion, anything. So, you know, this happening, there's a bunch of people around you mm. that you don't know who this can be extremely triggering for bring back ptsd you know the actress busy phillips who's become a big abortion rights activist she went viral i think last year because someone was talking about how you know you might know you might think you don't know someone who had an abortion and she said but you know me and i had one and so it became like kind of this rallying cry for a lot of women like you know okay, we're in New York, it's safe for now or whatever. We have maybe privilege and access, all that kind of stuff. But like you you are surrounded by people in your lives who you think you know who may have had a really traumatic experience, like some of the stories Julia was describing. And just hearing about this every day is like fully activating PTSD for them and all kinds of things. So it's just like a general awareness that people should have. I think what's made me most angry as I, thought, I saw Mitch McConnell delivering the speech um, from the uh, floor of the Senate where he's basically saying that women can wait until nine, they're nine months pregnant and then get an abortion as if any woman would carry a baby for nine months and then say, hey, I'm going to get an abortion now just because, you know, I want to make it as difficult and painful as possible. You know, the idea of anybody choosing to get an abortion, you know, on their due date is just psychotic and only somebody that could not get pregnant. It's also not like actually possible. I don't so know. That's, yeah, that's exactly like the thing. Delivering it, you know, a man, like a man who's in like such a high leadership position in this country that the like blatant ignorance is wild. By the way, I just got a uh, 
push notification on my phone from the New York Times that said Oklahoma lawmakers passed a bill banning nearly all abortions starting at fertilization, which would make it the nation's strictest abortion law. And the sad thing about that is that, you know, if you've been following the Times, they did a a thing about this a few months ago on the Daily, their podcast. And um, Oklahoma was where all of the women from Texas were going um, to get help. And now that's out for them. So just added several hundred, if not, you know, several thousand miles. Right. And like, there are women who have children and love them. And that's why they're choosing to have an abortion for, because they love the children they already have, and they want the lives of those children to be good. And again, that doesn't mean that the 22 year old woman who you know, quote unquote, carelessly had unprotected sex with her boyfriend also doesn't have just as much of a right to get an abortion too. So it's it's, a bigger issue. It's not about, it's not just about abortion. This is about so much more. Yeah. Get the red cloaks ironed. Suspect that this will not be the last conversation that we'll have on this topic. Nope. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sacharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.